welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Um, my name is Mike. If we have not met, I am uh, one of the pastors here at Awaken, and excited to uh, to get into um, what I think um, we've got for this morning. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke four. While you do that, um, for those that are new, we're in a series called Theography, which is actually not a word. Uh, we've made it up, and it's a uh, it's a it's it's been um, uh, about four weeks now. Reflections on a trip that I uh, was fortunate enough to take to Israel. And so we've been kind of going through what does it mean to um, have a picture of the land and read the scriptures. And so I've been sort of your guide and translator along the way. It's been a lot of fun for me. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Um, We're going to continue in Luke 4, and uh, I'll just kind of get you up to speed. Week 1, we talked about 1 Kings 18 and uh, Elijah on Mount Carmel. Uh, And really the question of what does it mean to see, Uh, kind of this idea of sacred seeing, where God sort of reveals these moments in time and in space and invites you into something. Um, we, we, uh, week two, we looked at uh, a place called Tel Dan, which is the beginning, one of the sources of the Jordan River, and this idea of uh, our deepest desires and what does it mean to thirst? What does it mean to be thirsty for something? Uh, week three, we were on retreat, and Dave Berge, my friend, spoke. And then last week, we looked at Luke 4, the beginning of Luke chapter 4, and this idea of name and identity and what does it mean to stand in uh, who God has made you to be. So we're going to continue in Luke 4. Um, chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 23 is where we'll pick up the story. And uh, if you can, I would invite you to stand as we read, uh, read the word. Verse 23 says, Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. I'm sorry, before I do that, just to get you up to speed, he's just read Isaiah 61. Uh, you know, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to preach good news. And then he sits down, he says, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. They're all really interested in this idea. And then in verse 23, he says, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me. Do hear in your hometown what we, what we have heard you, that you were did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his own town or his hometown. I assure you that there, are, there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet. Yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up and drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. God, as we open ourselves up to this text and this story, uh, this one in particular, but in general, uh, what you have revealed to us through the scriptures, we pray that you would, by your spirit, be present in a way that we have access to you. Uh, you always do, but God, give us eyes to see you and ears to hear you this morning, we pray. All God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. <clears throat> uh, I've tried to show some pictures along the way just to give you an idea, a lay of the land as to what we're talking about. So I'll just put up a few pictures here. Um, this is a, a, a topographical map of Israel. Uh, from north to south, and you can see, we've talked about this, but Israel is incredibly undulating. It goes from sea level to 3,000 feet above sea level to 1,500 feet below sea level. So there's lots of mountains, lots of hills, lots of terrain to, uh, 
to, to transverse, um, kind of, this is the Dead Sea here. To the left of that is Jerusalem, Sea of Galilee is up to the north. Uh, go ahead and flip to that next one. This is a zoom in of uh, the Valley of Jezreel right by the Sea of Galilee. So Nazareth is uh, basically straight north of the, the Jezreel Valley. This is where Jesus is born. This is, um, uh, this is the hills. This is the sticks. This is the countryside in Jesus' time. Around 200 people would have lived there. What good could come from Nazareth, right? It's no man's land. It's sort of... Uh, uh, yeah, we'll call it no man's land. Um, this is a panoramic picture of Nazareth of today. Uh, as you can see, it's very, very uh, populated, very sprawling. It sort of fills the hillsides and goes on actually over to this side. And this picture was actually taken from the Mount of Precipice. So at the end of Luke 4, when they take him out to the edge of the town and they're going to throw him off the cliff, this is the cliff from which this picture right here is taken from. If you want to show that next one. Uh, that's where I was standing. There's a tree on top of that. There's a m- little monument, but the, the people would have driven Jesus out of the town onto this cliff to throw him off of this cliff. Um, if you're standing on this cliff and looking to the other side in this next picture, you can see uh, the Mount of Transfiguration where Elijah and Moses show up. If you remember that story, uh, this is Mount Tabor. Uh, and actually from 1 Kings 18, which we studied a couple weeks ago, you can see the Mount of Transfiguration, basically on the other side of the Jezreel Valley looking this way. You can see the Mount of Transfiguration. And then one last one, uh, this is just kind of me standing on the Mount of Precipice. And so if anybody ever wants to push me off, just find this picture and go for it, okay? Um, so this is just kind of a lay of the land. This is what we're talking about. Nazareth, Jesus, this is his hometown. Uh, and and this, this mount, the Mount of Precipice, plays a real key role in this story. Um, have you ever had a sweater on and you, you found like a loose thread on it? And you, go, you, you think, you know, I can get this one, right? And so you pull it and, of course, it begins to unravel. And if you want me to destroy your sweater, just pull this thread as I walk away. Yes! That's a Weezer reference for all of you who are in the dark on that one. I've been waiting to set that up all week. Luke has woven together this beautiful tapestry in the first four chapters of his gospel. You could end the gospel right here, and there's just a ton in it. But he's woven together this beautiful picture, and I want to sort of pull on two threads that we find, especially in this section that we read, but that certainly play into the first four chapters that we've been studying, or that we looked at last week. So I want to pull these two threads. One is about going back. One of the threads is about the past, and one of these threads is about the future. One of them is about Israel and her exodus, and the other is about the kingdom of God and what is grace. Uh, So let's dig in. Uh, We'll pull the first thread, Uh, exodus and new exodus. I would say it this way. Luke presents Jesus as the bringer of a new exodus. Now, if you've been around Awaken long enough, you may have heard this kind of language before because it's really, really, um, when, you're, when, you, when, you, when you know what to look for and you're reading the Gospels, I would submit to you it's quite obvious that this is what the Gospel writers are doing, in particular Luke. He submits Jesus to us, the reader, as a bringer of a new kind of exodus. Now, you might be wondering, like, well, there was already an exodus. Why do we need another one? Let's ask a question. What was the exodus really about? What was Moses and the people coming out of Egypt? What was surrounding that? What were sort of the themes below that? I would argue that it was certainly about slavery. It was about being slaves in a land that is not your own. Right? It's about being far from home. Uh, It's about being displaced. It's about oppression and bondage. It's about the things that like, weigh us down, the sort of shackles around our ankles. Obviously, this is a historical uh, event, but spiritually speaking, there's a lot going on here. This is a story about freedom and liberation from the yoke of slavery. If nothing else, 
The Exodus is about Moses bringing salvation to God's people through whom God would save the world. And if we miss this part, we miss a massive key in unlocking the story of the scriptures. I'll say it again. The Exodus is about Moses bringing salvation to the Jewish people through whom God would bring salvation to the world. So it's if then, right? There's a, there's a, there's a partnership here between Yahweh and Israel. And it's God's intent to use Israel to bring salvation to the world. Now, it doesn't take long in the Exodus story to find the Israelites sort of missing the boat on this one, right? Uh, they, they immediately, when they get out there, they're like, you know, why have you brought us out here in the desert? You know, we were in Egypt where we had food and onions and leeks and melons and garlic and all this, and now we're out here starving with no food to eat. It, it takes no time at all for the Israelites to sort of start complaining. And this, the seed of that grows into really total and utter unfaithfulness by the Israelite people in the Old Testament where they fail to live into who God invites them to be and covenants to be for them if they will be this with God, right? Sort of bride and groom kind of language that we get, the beginnings of it. Now, even in the midst of that, God offers God's self to Israel in covenant relationship and Israel sort of stands back and, you know, um, well, makes out with another dude, uh, figuratively speaking, right? All the other gods, sorry, that sounded a lot better in my head. Israel, I mean, they're called a harlot. They sort of whore themselves out to other religions and people around them, and it doesn't take long. But even in the midst of that, God, Yahweh, is faithful and offers yet another promise that still, through Israel, through the line of David, through the root of Jesse, the seed of Jesse, the line of David, Israel themselves, God would bring a savior, a Messiah, an anointed one, this true Israel. Now, I've quoted this passage before, but I want to show it to you. Go back uh, to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, and this is a key passage, uh, verse 15 we're going to look at. A key passage in understanding the expectations of the Jewish people around the time that Jesus shows up. This is a key, this one right here. It says this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. Okay, the inference is Moses, whether or not you believe Moses wrote this or not, regardless. Um, Will raise up a prophet like me from among you, from your fellow Israelites. You must listen to him. Last week, we talked about all the people who were waiting for the consolation, the redemption, the restoration of Israel in Luke 1 to 3. There's a whole host of them, from John the Baptist to Mary, Jesus' mother, to Zechariah, John's father, to Simeon, to Anna. They're all waiting for God to do something, right? There's this sort of latent expectancy that God's going to come back or show up or do something big. And this is exactly what's happening in the time of Jesus. All of these people are waiting, they're expecting, they're hoping for God to do something like God did with Moses and the Israelites in the first Exodus. Okay? Now you start put the pieces together of new Exodus kinds of ideas. This, this hope, this expectancy, this, this expectation, is, this anticipation is rooted Certainly in Isaiah, if you're familiar with the suffering servant passages of Isaiah, it's about 50 to 61-ish or so. There are a number of them that, that call out this, this figure that will rise up out of Israel and will come and restore and redeem and save Israel. This hope that's happening, this expectancy that happens in the first century is rooted in Isaiah, but it's absolutely connected to Deuteronomy 18.15. That there will be a prophet like Moses 
who will do something like Moses did for God's people again. There's another passage in Malachi that talks about Elijah coming back and being the forerunner for this Messiah. This is why the, is, the Jews still to this day raise a cup and they leave the door open. Um, I think it's on Passover for Elijah to come back, right? They're still waiting for this. And you could do all kinds of interesting uh, work with the Mount of Transfiguration where Jesus sees Elijah and Moses and all that. Set that aside, okay? But this expectancy is rooted in Isaiah, Deuteronomy, Malachi, this hope that God would return. Now, the, the gospel writers talk about this in all kinds of ways. And the people, just to prove to you that I'm not blowing smoke and I'm not making things up here, if you look at the gospels, everybody's asking this question. Are you the prophet? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet, the Messiah? Are you the anointed one? They're all asking it. Here's a couple of examples from John. Verse uh, 45 of chapter one says this. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. In the sixth chapter of John's gospel, he says, after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who would come into the world. So this is one gospel, John uh, and other gospel writers make mention of this, that people are asking, is, is John the Baptist Elijah and is Jesus the Messiah? Is he the prophet? Is he the one that Moses spoke about? Uh, in Acts, Peter and Stephen both connect Jesus to this prophet like Moses. Uh, the 22nd verse of the third chapter in Acts, for Moses said, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Acts 7.37 says, This is the Moses who told the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. Okay, if you're not convinced now, I'm not sure what else I can do for you. This is what the people were waiting for, hoping for, expecting. They're, they're just anticipating God might do something. I'm submitting to you that Luke is painting Jesus in terms of a new exodus that God is doing in and through this Messiah, in and through this person called Jesus. Look at the references Luke makes to Jesus and Exodus and Moses, okay? Uh, I'll just go down a couple of them. The baptism of Jesus, when Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River and he's baptized by John. For the Jewish people, when Moses walks through the Red Sea, they call this the baptism of Moses. And many believe that it's actually the birthplace. It's sort of a birth canal, if you will. And out on the other side comes this new fledgling baby group of people called Israel. It's the birthplace of Israel. And it's the baptism of Moses. Luke connects this instance, this event, Jesus' baptism with this. Um, when Jesus comes out of the water, what's the voice he hears from, the, from, from heaven? This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. If you go back in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms, one of the common reference to Israel, the nation, is the sons of God. It's no mistake that Luke and other gospel writers call Jesus the son of God. He is true Israel. He's a representative of what Israel was supposed to be in covenant with Yahweh. You tracking? Keep going. Uh, Jesus spends 40 days in the desert. We talked a little bit about this last week. The number 40. Moses was 40 when he went to Egypt to visit his people for the first time. He kills a guy. Somebody finds out about it. He flees to the desert. It's 40 years later that he stands in front of a burning bush. And God calls him to go and get the people. It's 40 years that they wander uh, in the desert. It's 40 days that Moses is on the mountain. Friends, this 40 reference, if we don't get this, let me call my friend Tommy over and he'll hit you on the head with a tack hammer because you're an idiot. 
This one is so obvious. It is so obvious that Luke and, and the other gospel writers are connecting Jesus to the Exodus, okay? This one is like blinking lights. Don't miss this. Jesus um, succeeds where Israel fails. Mo- uh, a number of moments in, the, in, the, in the, De- the story of Deuteronomy that tells the story of the Israelites, the Israelites fail and Jesus succeeds. When he goes out into the desert, he's tempted by Satan three times, right? It's make a, uh, turn the, the rocks into bread. Um, look over all the kingdoms and I'll give these to you if you bow a knee to me and throw yourself from this temple and see if the angels save you, okay? These are all temptations that Israel faced in the desert and they failed on every account. Jesus, in his response to the tempter, quotes literally from Deuteronomy, The first one is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He says, man shall not live by bread alone. This is not just a whimsical, witty response to the devil. This is a quote from Deuteronomy referencing back to when Israel failed this temptation. Uh, The second one is Deuteronomy 6, 13. Worship Yahweh and serve him alone. Again, a direct quote from Deuteronomy. The last one, Deuteronomy 6, 16. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Important for us to see that where Israel fails to live into covenant faithfulness to Yahweh, Jesus, the Messiah, true Israel, succeeds. In every way that Israel fails, he passes the test. These are all ways that the gospel writers are sort of like throwing us keys. Like, listen, hey, do you notice this? Do you see this? New Exodus, true Israel, new Moses, prophet like Moses, all wrapped up here. Lastly, this story in Luke chapter 4 that we read, how does it end? What's the last part that we read? Does anybody remember what does Jesus do? He walks through the crowd. Some of your translations say, and he passes through the crowd. For a thousand Torah points, the reference is? Somebody said it. I heard the sea, right? When the Israelites walk through the Dead Sea, okay? All that to say, Moses would bring salvation to God's people through whom God would bring salvation to the world. What Luke, and this is all this to say, here's what I'm getting at. What Luke wants us to see is that it is Jesus who stands in Israel's place, lives faithful to the covenant expectations of Yahweh, and becomes the true Israel that offers forgiveness and salvation and healing and redemption and hope to the world. And it is not just for Israel. It's for you. And it's for me. This is what Luke is getting at. It's for you and it's for me, right here, right now, today. Freedom from all of, remember what the Exodus is about, right? Freedom, slavery, bondage, oppression. Freedom from all of the ways that we experience brokenness and darkness and sin in our lives. Salvation from all of the ways that we try to fix it, prop it up, make it better, figure it out. Freedom from the pressure to keep it all going, to keep this plate spinning and the images up. Forgiveness for all the ways that we hurt others and we hurt ourselves. Healing and redemption for all that has been lost because of our brokenness. Life instead of death, hope instead of despair, light instead of darkness. This is what Jesus offers you, me, right here, right now, because of his death and his resurrection. One songwriter says, when death dies, all things live. Think about that for a second. What does Jesus take upon himself? Death. 
the worst that the enemy has to offer, death. When death dies, all things live. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the hope of Jesus. This is what Luke is getting at. This is where he wants to lead us, to offer this to you like Jesus offers himself on the cross. Either you are your own savior. You are your own redemption. You are your own healing. Either you figure out how to make this happen for yourselves, you're your own hope, or you come to the end of yourself and your own resources and you recognize, I cannot do it. And this, my friends, is where life begins. It's the paradoxical nature of the scriptures. We have to go through death to experience life. This is why Paul says, I want to experience in Christ's death so that I can participate in his resurrection. And so I guess I'd ask you this morning, maybe that's you. Maybe you can't beat it. You can't fix it. You can't figure it out. You can't put it back together, and it's a mess. Maybe it's dark, and maybe life seems pretty small. And I I hesitated even doing this this morning because it it may feel like, you know, uh, I'm some sort of televangelist um, sort of trying to sell you something. but I'm not. And I hope that you know me well enough for those of you that have been around this community that I would not say this if I did not believe that it was true. And so I offer it to you for your consideration. Either you figure it out and you're on your own and you are your own master and you can make it, you can make it work. Or we need something else. We need someone else. And the good news of the gospel is that it has been done and it has been offered to you and it is free and it is grace. And it's a new exodus from all of the ways that we are enslaved enslaved and in bondage and, and in darkness. All of those ways, it's offered to you. That's one thread. And we could end there, right, in this passage. Let me just pull one other one. Uh, For those of you who maybe have been following Jesus for a while, there's something here for you, I promise. I would say it this way. Yahweh is saving all the wrong people. (laughs) You read this passage, right? And it's sort of this interesting, you know, Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointing me to preach good news, he sits down like a good rabbi, today this teaching is fulfilled in your hearing. The people are like, oh, that's interesting. Isn't that Joseph's son? And then Jesus like preemptively he sort of like, uh, he, he, he beats him to the punch. He's like, I know what you're going to say next. Why don't you do some of those tricks like you did in Capernaum? We've heard you do some of those things. Well, you know, dance, monkey, dance, right? Well, you know, put a quarter in, let's see some of your things, right? And Jesus sort of says, hey, I know what you're going to say. Why don't you do this or, or heal this guy and do this kind of thing? You know what? Here's the dealio. And he just lays the smack down on these people. And he tells two cryptic stories about Elijah in 1 Kings 18. This is Mount Carmel when there's a drought and he sends the prophet of the Lord to the people. Nobody listens except for one widow in Zarephath of Sidon, which, by the way, is non-Jewish, okay? It's Gentiles. Then he tells another cryptic story about Elisha and Naaman the Syrian who gets healed from leprosy. There's all kinds of people who are, who are struggling with this leprosy deal in, is, in Israel. Do you want to know how many of them got healed? Zippo, zilch, nada, none. Only Naaman the Syrian, the pagan Gentile enemy of Israel, gets healed. So these people are really, really hacked off at this point. We're still not really sure why. They run him out to the edge of town and they want to kill him. Like how bizarre, right? What a, what a weird ending to a story. I mean, as budding theologians who are supposed to, you know, at, supposed to be learning to ask the next right question, you all should be thinking, 
Why? Why? It's a simple question. Why are they so mad? And why do they run him to the edge of town to kill him? What does Jesus say by saying what he says? Now that, my friends, is a sweet little dish. What does Jesus put in and what does he leave out are two questions that help us unlock why these people are so angry. What does Jesus leave out? What does he put in? What does he leave out? Isaiah 61, 1 to 2 does not end the way Jesus ends it in Luke's gospel. If you would throw the, the, that, um, uh, yep, that. If you would put that up there, here we have on one side Luke chapter 4 and Isaiah 61 on the right, okay? Read Isaiah 61. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Sounds good so far, right? This is what Jesus says. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, proclaim freedom for the captives, release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop. That's where Luke stops. That's where Jesus stops. What does Jesus leave out? Isaiah 61, 2b. Just this little tidbit of information. What is it? And the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all the people who mourn. <laughs> remember, remember Zechariah and John the Baptist in chapter one of Luke? Zechariah quotes, he's like really excited about the, the spirit, you know, the, the Messiah that's coming, the anointed one, and he says this in, in verse 71. Salvation from our enemies and all of those who hate us. There is a serious current of national uh, pride and hope running in Israel in the first century. And by that I mean, if you're a Jew, Isaiah 61 is good news. You love this verse, and especially you love 61 2b. Because this is, here's what's going to happen. God's going to come back to Israel. Not only is he going to redeem Israel, but he's going to open up a can on all of the people who have oppressed us, including the Romans who are here now. And this is what Jesus leaves out. And he stops with grace and forgiveness for the whole world. If you're these people, you're, you're madder than a you know, hornet's nest. He's stirred up a little bit and all the bees are buzzing. I just imagine him sitting there and he stops and he's like, wait for it, wait for it, here it comes, you know, like he's just setting them up, he tees them up. So this is the first part of what he leaves out, what does he put in? The two stories about Elijah and Elisha, right, I, I hinted at them, the two things they have in common, God's people do not recognize the prophet when sent. Elijah comes to the king of Israel. And he says, the spirit has left the building and you're about to experience drought. And nobody listens except for one widow who lives out in the boondocks outside of inn. One widow who's not a Jew. One widow who's a pagan, Gentile, non-covenant. Her kids are probably not even circumcised. Yeah, I mean, Seriously. It's this woman who finds Yahweh. It's this woman who experienced God's grace, not the Jews, not the people you would expect. The other story about Elisha and Naaman the Syrian. The Syrians are like the sworn enemies. They're the people who come in and kill. And it's nobody in Israel who finds healing and forgiveness and, and cleansing from leprosy, but somebody outside of in. All the wrong people are getting saved. All the wrong people are being offered grace and forgiveness. The gospel is just too big. 
Because those people deserve vengeance. They deserve punishment. They deserve to go to hell. And Jesus stops at grace and forgiveness for the world. Am I in your, am I in your grill yet? The exact people who they thought would receive vengeance from God, the pagans, the Gentiles, those outside, receive grace. And the exact people that they thought would receive grace and redemption receive judgment, Israel. And so, my friends, I would say to you this morning, God's grace and forgiveness is being offered to all the wrong people. And here, the people's perceptions their pictures of God, and their expectations of God and what God will do are confronted by the Jesus that stands in front of them. And they're mad. Because this is not the way God's supposed to do it. This is not the way it's supposed to work out. I have lived my whole life faithful to you. And never once have you offered me anything. Does that sound familiar? As we close, let me say this. For some in the room, we read this story and there is a new exodus being offered to you. Grace, forgiveness, healing, redemption. Somebody else who can carry it all for you. So you don't have to walk another step with the weight of whatever it is on your shoulders. It's grace. And by faith, we receive it, we begin to live in it, and we're changed by it. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To say no, to let that version, that iteration of you die so that something else can be born. And it's by faith. Maybe today's your day. And for some of us who have followed this Jesus for our whole lives, what happens when our perceptions and our expectations of what God will do do not conform to this Jesus who stands in front of us? What do you do with that? Is God as loving as Jesus in your mind? Is God as beautiful as Jesus? Is your picture of God as gracious and as open-armed and as welcoming and hospitable as the Jesus who dies on the cross for you in somewhat similar posture? I think for many of us in the church and many of us who grew up around religion, this is some, there's, there, there may be some work that could be done here. The Israelites, in John chapter 21, John says to Jesus, what about Peter? What, what, what's going to happen to him? What about him? And do you remember Jesus' response to John? What concern of him, what, what concern to you is he? Which is essentially like code word for mind your own business. Worry about yourself. You and me, we'll work on our stuff. You let me and him work on our stuff. We assume this role, don't we, sometimes? And I think as, we look, as I look at this picture and I watch why these people are so mad, it's grace to everybody. Everybody, regardless. I mean, like literally, everybody. There aren't any exceptions. 
God's grace and forgiveness is offered to all the wrong people, all the people on the other side of the aisle, the other side of the debate, the other side of the issue, the other side of the race, class, gender, even sexual norms. On the other side, God's grace is offered there. And we're called to follow Jesus. So, what say you? Uh, ben and the band are going to come, and we're going uh, we're gonna to close with uh, some singing together and uh, some reflection. And I would just invite you in this first tune that we're going to do. Uh, there's, a, there's a line that we'll repeat over and over again. And it says, here's my heart, God. Speak what is true. And I would just encourage you to listen for a bit and let that sink in. And if you... Uh, Maybe for the first time this morning, you're ready to, to give it up and to stop trying and to receive by faith the forgiveness that Jesus offers and the healing and the hope that he offers. And maybe whenever you get to that point, just start singing that. Here, God, here is my heart. Speak what is true. And for those who have said yes to Jesus, can I just encourage you, me, can I encourage me to sit with that for a few minutes? God, here is my heart. Speak what is true. Transform my image, my picture, my perception, my expectations of you to be in line with what I know to be true about Jesus. I think if we can start moving in that direction, we're going to be okay. Like an open hand surrenders what it holds. Teach us to surrender who we are. Like eyes open wide, not shifting from what they see. Lord, let us not hide from each other. Like ears leaning into a whisper. We are ready to listen. Like fields of open flowers say yes to light. We want to say yes to you. Like wood laid down for the fire. Here's our hearts, Lord. online at com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash Awakening Community or on Twitter at Awakening Community. See you next time.